This is Heidi Matthews On Demand, the podcast that is R-rated, but with plausible deniability. HMOD is a barely legal podcast about sex, culture, politics, and legal regulation, hosted by me, Osgood Hall Law School professor Heidi Matthews, and co-hosted and produced by my husband, David Slavik. This week, David and I chat with journalist and writer Andre Domiz about race, politics, and essentially everything within Canada, the U.S., and fuck elsewhere. It's a tour de force. No introduction would do it justice. You have to listen to it. Andre Domiz lives in Toronto. He's a journalist and writer, a contributing editor at McLean's Magazine. He is also a co-host of Black Tea Podcast and a dad to two one-year-old twins. Please listen to this. It's unbelievable. We haven't edited anything of it because that would be an absolute travesty. So enjoy Andre Domi's. So, Andre, welcome to the living room. Uh, it's nice to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, by. So, Andre, can you tell uh, our listeners who may not be as familiar with you a little bit about yourself and what you do and kind of how you got into the media sphere? Well, I'm a contributing editor at McLean's Magazine. I, I do uh, semi-regular columns at the Globe and Mail, occasionally do columns for, uh, for Vice. Um, I got into this uh, back around 2014 after an unsuccessful run at city council, um, but due to a couple of essays that I wrote, it uh, turns out that I actually can write. And I no, I started I started writing um, articles with uh, Torontoist and Toronto Life, uh, which then sort of snowballed into other opportunities, and here I am. That's great. I I know that coming through a circuitous route into sort of media is always. I think the people who come into media from somewhere else are always the best people. Uh, I have, I always kind of, uh, crap on J school people because I, I don't think they have like a substantive background and, or information. I but, think uh, the, uh, the J school track here is I'm seeing, like I'm seeing glimmering signs of hope. Like I know people that have come through the J school track and, uh, and you know, come from like neighborhoods, like the one that I came from, you know? So, uh, I, I am seeing like a wider range of views being represented. I am seeing people who, like under like if you're reporting on i don't know uh transit issues or you're reporting on like local neighborhood issues and you're talking about scarborough or you're talking about rexdale or you're, you're talking about uh north york and toronto like a lot of times um when i was growing up like you'd see reporters who grew up in like caledon somewhere coming into my neighborhood and trying to have conversations about issues happening in my neighborhood which just it, it didn't work like the the narrative is no, like what I was watching on TV. The narratives didn't actually fit the reality, but I think you are starting to see a lot more of that. I think that City News in Toronto actually does a fairly good job of this, mm-hmm. uh, which is trying to hire a staff that represents the communities that they're uh, hired to cover. Um, so they bring that sensibility into their work. There are news organizations, I think, in this country that do a piss poor job of that, but I'm seeing signs of hope is what I'm trying to say. So do you think the Canadian media is, uh, on the whole, representative of the people it reports to? Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, sir. Uh, and I'll say why. Like, um, I, and I'm not, I don't think I'm being controversial when I say this here. But trying to have, especially where it comes to Canadian politics, it's like it's such a slog. Like trying to have um, political conversations in Canada is the most stultifyingly boring and like tedious endeavor that I could possibly imagine. Like I, I think 
it is one of the trials that you end up going through in purgatory um, before your soul, your soul is cleansed. You don't want to talk about the Shawcross doctrine for you know three hours. Well, that's uh, right. Okay, but the, here's here's what makes me so upset about that. People will people will what, hear what uh, Lord Dumbledore said in 1944. Okay, but did you, have you heard about? Okay, did you hear the Shawcross doctrine? before like three months ago you never heard anybody no. talking about that no. but no. what people will do is like try to find like obscure parliamentary language to explain the realities of what's happening in canadian politics and for the average person turning on their tv set and listening to this like having to wade through this like this muck and jargon to understand for example what this snc love and fiasco is about or you know why it is that the uh, the attorney general would be recording conversations uh, with people in the same administration and then releasing them to the public. Like for the average viewer to tune in and understand what is happening in our government, I can't even imagine how shady and boring it is. Like for a lot of people that I know that are not politicals, like that are not junkies for this stuff, that just tune into the evening news. They're like, why are we still talking about this? I actually think that's intentional. And that's uh, right, and that's what I'm trying view. to get at. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's. There's a number of different ways that happens in D.C. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see, like, the sort of media kind of build up in a way that will say, like, oh, we're the experts. You know, I've been in this industry. And they use they use experience as the, mm-hmm. as the tool. Here it seems like they use sort of, like, anglicized language to be the tool. They're like, by the way, we're the experts. You know, it's fine. It's Canada. You don't have to it's think about this that stuff. Bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and – Like, now this- we're having this conversation about whether it was legal for the prime minister to have – uh, basically t- turfed uh, two members of his uh, his caucus out of caucus and having to like the d- debate the legality of that. And it's like nobody fucking cares. Yeah. Can we talk? Can we talk about actual problems that we can we talk about environmental issues? Yeah. Can we talk about labor issues? Yeah. Can Social we, housing. Listen, Toronto has a uh, multi billion dollar backlog in terms of social housing. The thing that um, I think encapsulates Toronto and Toronto media the best was underneath the uh, the Gardner Expressway oh, a few weeks ago uh, when there, there was a yeah there was, a, there was an encampment um, which was like right by the uh, uh, the Spadina off ramp and uh, so there was an encampment there that was basically like torn down and bulldozed and it's like you only have homeless encampments in any urban area because you're failing at social housing like it's it's a it's a sign that your government has failed and we've been talking about this multi-billion dollar backlog for for most of my adult life. Uh, the fact that they would um, tear this encampment down and not have any plan to move the people who are living in the encampment. There's, like, there's, no space for, there's no shelter space for them. Mm-hmm. There are no social housing units available for them. It's just we're, we're clearing this eyesore out from underneath the bridge. And then a couple of weeks later, this like restaurant pops up. Not in the exact same location, but not far away. Uh, this outdoors restaurant where people like, un- and it's it's built again under the uh, the highway overpass, and it's these these bubbles, uh, where people like they go and they sit in a table inside a this plastic bubble, it, right? Um, a bubble. It's a bubble. It, lo- it looks like a like a futuristic like a moon colony or something. And you know the the waiter brings the food out from the restaurant and serves it to the people who are sitting inside this bubble, and it's called like a dining with a view or something like that. Um, which I was very happy to see the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, um, you know, had had a counter event called uh, Dinner with a View of the Rich, <laughs> and they basically had like a like a free meal that was served to people, and they were like making noise and pointing and mocking these rich assholes that, uh, like, that's the kind of stuff I I love to see. But what I really hated was when Toronto Media was reporting um, a on this. Uh, bubble restaurant and be on the uh, the tearing down of these in, in, uh, housing, homeless encampments 
I, I fail to see media holding the government to account. And I'm not saying that nobody's asking the questions about why does this multi-billion dollar housing backlog, uh, repair backlog exist? And why uh, are we so over capacity um, for, uh, for social housing? People are asking the question, but they're not holding, for example, Mayor John Tory's feet to the fire. He, they ask a question about social housing and he waffles for like five minutes and they pick the most coherent sentences out of that lengthy waffling and then make a quote out of it. And then that's the end of the story. Don't you wish everybody did that work for you? Like if you could get a whole like industry to just basically make you look good all day. That would that would uh, be excellent if oh, I don't I don't think the media necessarily makes the mayor of Toronto or the premier of Ontario look at I think they try their best to push back against them. But it's like, we're not going to win this argument on the matter of facts alone. Because facts don't fucking matter to these people. You think Doug Ford gives a fuck about facts? (laughs) He has has a government-funded media arm called Ontario News Now, where he just gets to make up his own facts and and speak to his constituency through the facts that he basically pulls out of his ass. So, like, that's that's not how this this struggle is going to be won. So, Andre, um, again... Welcome to the living room. We are so happy because neither of us are Torontonians by birth or breeding. Yeah. Uh, David over here is a, a bad guy from DC. And uh, as I recently revealed to you, I'm a newfie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I haven't even roasted you about that. Yet. I know. I know. So I'm just giving you the opportunity. I'm just like planting that seed. Actually, what I said to, I said to you on over DMs. And I actually kind of felt bad when I said it. But no. The, the joke no. was too good. Uh, when you told me that you were your newfie. And I said, y'all took art because I'm of Jamaican background, right? So uh, Maritimes people and Caribbean people do have like a trading relationship. Mm-hmm. And I said that y'all, we sold you our shit rum and you turned it into a personality. Yeah, man. Screech. And I, 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 have I res- didn't even I've... mean to do that. I just did that by accident. I was like, yeah, man. <laughs> I have mad respect for I it. Agree. I respect it. For those of you who are you can't see this because you're listening, Heidi just slipped on a Rastafari hat, and uh, yeah, I'm really she, uncomfortable with it. Heidi didn't know such thing. Also, I, would, I have to say, I, I want to. Although ask I will you, say, I will yeah. say though that um, I mean, you're correct. I we, in a way, we, we, in a way, no, that's what exactly what happened. But you, right? Newfoundland's amazing, though. No, Newfoundland is. Have a you very been on quaint? Yeah, I've been. Okay, good. It's a very, it's a very quaint, like, homely. No, because yeah, <laughs> I was running the rum myself. Um, <laughs> The area in Jamaica that my family comes from is like a very sort of like rural, like a pastoral area. Like my family back there, like they're all fi- farmers and carpenters, like yeah. the people who work with their hands. So, mm. and I, I feel that same atmosphere yeah. in Newfoundland. So yeah. I, I, I get like, there's, there's a cultural semblance there. Yeah. 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 Except yeah. that, you know, ours just happens to be cooler. Yeah. No, I mean, probably. Yeah. I mean, there, <laughs> there's different kind of coolness. I mean, although if anyone, if you, I mean, they probably are the cutest white people. Which goes at no, but like in terms of I like, think ter- between, do you know? But I'm not. I'm not trying. Getting the calipers. Out. No, I'm not. No, I'm just thinking like in terms of like they're adorable. I didn't agree to having my skull measured before White I came on here. Uh, well, no, if it- but I want to ask you about Jamaican food in Toronto too okay. before we get off of it. Oh boy! Because I went uh, to yeah. Chubby's the other night. Why would you do that? I don't know. Because my well, I was invited there, so I went there. Okay. So, so you're saying that's not a good thing to do? Okay. I, I wrote a okay. Globe and Mail article when I okay. Oh, okay. So I'll just I, I wrote an article. Um, about Chubby's. Now, the restaurant hadn't opened yet. I didn't even know that. Okay, great. Tell us about your people. Well, uh, okay. Um, the lady who uh, owns Chubby's, but also owns like Gusto and a few other restaurants around the area, um, when she, when her PR person announced that there was going to be a Jamaican restaurant in that neighborhood opened up, 
I, I forget the exact wording that was used. If, if I have known we we're going to talk about this, I would have looked it up. But uh, she said something to the effect like um, downtown Toronto deserves an amazing uh, Jamaican restaurant experience or something to that effect. And I remember reading that. And I was like, you piece of shit. Like, what are you trying to say about the currently existing Jamaican restaurants that exist around the downtown area? And then the other part is I know people who have either – had restaurants downtown or have wanted to open them up and there's a gigantic barrier to entry like even if you were able to find the money like if you're able to pull together the money and then the financial backing to open up a restaurant down here well good luck with the customers because like when they when they know that it's a a a caribbean person that uh owns a restaurant like it's you have to fight to get the customers in through the front door like people Mm. don't want to try new things but Mm. they will very easily do it if it happens to be a white lady offering Caribbean fare. It's like, oh, well, we actually trust her food. And I get that, like, it's a bit of a labor of love because she has, like, a, a, a I'm pretty sure her kitchen manager is a Jamaican lady herself. But it's like, why does why do we have to have an ambassador for our culture and our food? Why is it always required? Like, why can't we just do that ourselves? So I think, like, the way that she talked about, you know, Toronto deserving this amazing Caribbean experience was, I don't think she intended to do it, but it was basically shitting on everyone that's been trying to do that work before her. Fuck. Okay, well, I'm glad I asked the question. I had no idea about the backstory, but I was wondering about the establishment, right? Because it's yeah. like one of those other kind of Toronto hip whatever. But then well, and but so that's, I was that's the sitting... story of Toronto, though. Yeah, like, that's, exactly. Yeah. Toronto that's the is sense. Like, yeah. Toronto, is, Toronto is like a metropolitan Balenciaga. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a metropolitan Balenciaga in the sense that, like, it absorbs all of the standout things about <laughs> other like Balenciaga does this with, with other designers Toronto d- does yeah. that with like cultures from outside it like absorbs it into this like unrecognizable goulash and then serves up to you like the most bland portions available because it's not people that come from the culture that are presenting it it's people who are like introducing it as ambassadors so, so what you're saying is I, I should open a Newfie restaurant you should open a Newfie <laughs> restaurant actually actually for its work at Toronto I should open the Newfie restaurant because I've been to Newfoundland right what? you've yeah, been there yeah, one time yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. you went there I was um, really touched uh, yeah. let me do the advertisement for it right now and, so. and your spouses yeah from Newfoundland, so when therefore I, you have all the cultural cachet. I went for love, and I stayed for the food. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had fish and chips served to you by a woman with a beard? <laughs> I have. <laughs> then Not, you truly okay. can understand Newfie Town. Okay. Our restaurant, our concept, our way of life. I um. And I like how you're saying our, like this completely belongs yeah, to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's pretty much what Toronto <laughs> is. Is You know what? The, a really good example of that is uh, Caravana or sorry, Carnival. Um, and I've talked about this before, but, um, you know, people talk about uh, quote unquote Caravana, which it's not anymore. It's called Carnival uh, being like an exhibition of Caribbean culture. And it's not. It's basically like the most parasitic um, and like. There's like a, a a parasocial element to it where it's like you can feel like you you're in the culture and like you're hip to the culture, but it's not actually the culture. Like to get the culture, you'd have to go to like Cropover in Barbados. Yeah. You have to go to like Carnival in Trinidad and so like that's the actual culture. Carabana is like it, it. First of all, it was wrested away from the control of the original organizers by uh, a, a city councilor, um, Joe Mahevic from Toronto City Council, and. 
essentially handed over to an organization that they felt was going to be more financially responsible with it. But then the original purpose of Caravana, which was to, um, A, become a showcase for Caribbean culture to the people of Toronto and people of Canada, hopefully, but also, B, to redirect um, funds from the tourism dollars and the participation dollars and so forth back into the community. Well, that didn't actually happen. So basically, you have this like this event that draws in something to the order of like I'm pretty sure is like a half a billion dollars in revenue um, in terms of tourism and everything else that gets brought into the city over the course of yeah basically a weekend, um, but that doesn't get redirected to the community whatsoever. So it's just amazing to me how you could have, uh, for example, um, black people out in like you know Rexdale, Jane and Driftwood, uh, Scarborough, etc., who are struggling to find housing, and yet you have this like multi million dollar event that's bringing in all kinds of tourism and recognition uh for the the city and it doesn't benefit the community whatsoever that's just that's wild to me but that is the story of toronto so that that's one of the things i noticed right off the bat when i came to canada and i i lo- i actually love toronto and I, I don't want to sound like i'm downplaying it or i think it's one of the great cities in north america to be honest and that that's because of the people not necessarily because of the way it's run mm-hmm. and one of the things i noticed is sort of like diversity washing corporate money it is. And I've yeah. not seen it to this level. And I don't know if that's just because maybe that's an implication of having Trudeau as prime minister or if that's a trickle-down effect or if that's just a, sort of the That's how it's been you. in Canada for a very long time. Uh, although it's like I remember in the 90s, like when I was a teenager, um, before I headed off to the U.S., um, I'm pretty sure it was – I might have this wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was Sergio Marchi who was a – Minister of Public Safety in the Liberal government at the time, when um, there were like you know uh, gang-related shootings um, that had sort of like reached a crescendo in the mid '90s, and I think it, it, it culminated with the uh, shooting at Just Desserts. Um, now, you two not being from Toronto, you might not know this, but I, I think maybe if your listeners are from Toronto, they would know about the Just Desserts shooting, and uh, the uh, the perpetrators behind that shooting happened to be people who were of Jamaican birth, not necessarily Jamaican upbringing, but Jamaican birth. And after that that shooting, which I think shocked not just Toronto but Canada because an innocent white lady happened to be caught in the crossfire, uh, Georgina Lamonis, and and she died as a result. And Sergio Markey, the Minister of Public Safety, basically said that we have to change our laws um, to protect Canadians from people who would do the most harm. And basically he's referring to Jamaican people. So, like, it's just strange to me how we were basically the face of, like, black pathology in this country – up until sometime around the early 2000s. And then all of a sudden, like, we became cool. And I, and I think what really drove that was, a, uh, one, was um, Caravana's popularity, especially with Americans. And two, was the the burgeoning of hip-hop culture that was coming out of Canada. So, I think, I think like, the, the fact that Americans are tuning into our culture and starting to appreciate Canada, like, all of a sudden, politicians turn on a dime and they're like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, we absolutely love and support them. And that's just not how it was when I was growing up. Like, we were vilified yeah. in this community. So it, it is, in a sense, like, it's it's using the facade of diversity to launder all this, like, ugly corporate shit happening in the background. So it's like going from super predators to super super influencers, so to speak. Exactly. It's, it's, it's so funny to me. I, I was talking about this with a, a friend a few weeks ago. Do um, you remember how in, uh, like in like late eighties to mid nineties reporting about like urban blight, you would hear, I mean, when we talked about, about super predators, like that came from a very specific place. And a lot of that was like, um, reporting about crack babies, like crack babies in DC, in, uh, in, in New York city, in Atlanta, like there, there was this in LA, like there's this issue where, 
the children of crack addicts were going to like multiply and practically overrun the U.S. And what were you going to do besides build prisons to house them? Because they they don't like being held. They're irrational children. They they're not literate. Um, they have behavioral problems. And who are those crack babies, quote unquote? Like who are they now? People. I mean, they're, they're, well, they're <laughs> no, the yeah. very same millennials and Gen Z yeah. kids that oh, you that's see true. Yeah. that that are, I think, some of the most influential, like one of the most influential um, generation of Black Americans that has ever really been produced. Like, and I'm not saying that like they are more influential than their yeah. predecessors. What I'm saying is that like the ter- the the amount of cultural influence that millennials and Gen Z Black uh, youth and uh, young adults are able to what they've been able to produce. I think far exceeds what even their peers have been able to accomplish. Like they basically like millennials and, and, and uh, Gen Z black youth own the internet, like yeah. it, uh, internet trends, yeah, music it's true. trends, pop it's culture true. trends, et cetera. But these are the very same people that were talked about as being crack babies before. God, so that's interesting. That is really interesting. Yeah. When you yeah. say like going from super predators to super influencers, that is literally what the path was. It's so interesting to see that these, these like, replications of sort of social re-engineering and social sort of replication from the United States to Toronto. I know that when I was in DC, I lived in a neighborhood that was becoming quickly gentrified Mm -hmm. and I was, did you see the Metro PCS thing that happened? Yes. Oh my God. That broke my heart. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's go to that in a second, but yeah, go ahead. DC is, it's really interesting. I, I lived in Langston Carver. Mm -hmm. Langston Carver is the neighborhood over from Trinidad. So Langston Carver is the highest concentration of African Americans in the whole city. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it was in the census, and I think the last census it was there was one white household, and then when we moved in there, there was two white households. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And my roommates were Latinas, so it was like you know it was uh, you know it was I was the it was the white dude, and but it was but it was a great neighborhood. I loved it. It was like the birthplace of Go-Go. Go-Go is this really interesting music that they don't really have anywhere else. And Go-Go was a huge part of the culture of DC, but it was also vilified very mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. like Jamaican culture was at the time. Oh yeah. Like reggae and dancehall music. Yeah. I remember when I was like, if I was growing up and like, if I had my Walkman on and I was listening to like dancehall music and like, if, if like my classmates, who, yeah. I went to a school where like there was a gifted program, right? Yeah. So like the kids, even though the school was very black, like mm-hmm. my classmates were were also very white. So if they heard me like listening to it, they would like crack jokes about like yeah. reggae music and so on. And it's like, but now that's what you like. I bet your kids now listen to it. Yeah, you know kids do listen to it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's actually one of the that I I don't want to but I, I don't want to like gradiate whiteness. But I want to say one of the whitest dudes I know only listens to, to reggae music. So <laughs> that's not that's not at all surprising. No, like and we can talk about that. But like the amount of. Um, like the 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 rush um that like you know uh white producers and fans have like just there's been like an invasion of uh dancehall and hip-hop which i'm a little bit uncomfortable with Mm -hmm. myself because i I think that um artists like now have to cater to a sensibility that doesn't necessarily serve the community but we can get into a second let's go back to the the no no, no, absolutely so so the the story is essentially on um and this is actually i lived right off of u street i used to live right next to um uh, Ooz and Oz Cafe, between Ooz and Oz Cafe and essentially um, Hank's Chili Bowl, you know, okay. which are two classic places, a few blocks from Howard University. Mm-hmm. Great neighborhood. Um, loved the food was fantastic. Good Jamaican food, good Ethiopian food. Excellent. Um, there was a 
place that basically there's a Metro PCS. There's also a hairstyle place that mm. was uh, mostly African American hairstyle stuff. That it's stuff that I, I just you know we could get into later because we had a, I actually saw you comment on the crazy hair syndrome uh, woman from England. Uh, I think I sent that that video to you about. The oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, <laughs> and I yeah. and I sent it to her immediately because it, it, it is a Heidi Matthews, so the host of the podcast. But uh, <laughs> I sent it to her because she's got a little bit of a crazy hair. But it was we were laughing about it because. It's like, I don't. Why is this even a story? Why is this a yeah, story? Yeah, yeah. Anybody from a, a culture that has coarse hair is gonna like be like laughing about this. But so Metro PCS, they used to play go-go music out of it. It was fun. They, there was like sort of an area. There was like where they would have you could get your tarot cards read. Mm-hmm. You could. There was people dancing, doing break like dancing. Card Monty. And, oh, it was yeah, amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. And you go over there, you could buy some T-shirts. Uh, DC has a pretty legal weed sort of situation, so you could buy a T-shirt and get a bag of weed. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was kind of a great little open marketplace. And um, these this building that uh, really had problematic sort of advertising in general mm-hmm. um and downstairs they actually have a con- they actually have valet parking for their guests and the people who want to shop there there's a there's a warby parker in that building i think you get the picture yeah and it was built in a in u street right next to u street music hall which is like is like basically half of like the east coast black culture has gone through there right. like it's like, important and it's getting bought by like a developer you know? Yeah, so it's, it's getting rapidly gentrified. Yeah, it's rapidly yeah. gentrified. Very heartbreaking to watch. But now they're these residents of this building actually were like, we can't have that music out there anymore. It's just too much. Yeah, that music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love how because if you uh, like, there's videos of this on Twitter everywhere. Um, if you look at the hashtag, I think it was like "Don't mute DC." Yeah. Hashtag "Don't mute DC," and the videos of people who are just out dancing and singing and playing go-go and it's it's like yeah that's that's what you do you tell them like no nah, fuck you this is our neighborhood we were here first you don't tell us what music we can and cannot listen to like, you just you just showed up yeah. you're trying to show, you're trying to tell us the rules that's the stuff i really love to see and i frankly would love to see more of that in toronto i, I think about like not far from where we're recording you know it's uh it's regent park which is like None of one of the rougher neighborhoods in Toronto for most of the time that I was growing up, and I mean, granted there are like improvements that have been made. Um, there is local businesses that, that that do make a point of of local hiring as well, um, and try to ameliorate the community. But at the same time, like some of that flavor is just lost, as like as as the need for more housing um, and denser housing in Toronto is rapidly throwing up condos. Uh, as far as the eyes can see, it's also erasing that local culture. And a, a lot of that local culture happens to come from communities of color. So it you hate to see it, but at the same time, I really like what I'm seeing out of D.C. Yeah, D.C. is getting – I think – I will say this is that the interesting thing about D.C. is like during Obama – I was there during Bush. That was not great. It was just like steakhouses and, and – uh, uh, basically gun shops when i was there mm-hmm. under bush and then when obama came in it was like like the age of aquarius had started <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. and you could just like you could just hear the music in the background the fifth elements playing or fifth dimensions playing in the background <laughs> and it was just great like like vegan shops were popping up all this great food yeah. uh, a lot of the the caribbean stuff was coming back ethiopian stuff was coming back and he really like brought a lot to the culture you right. know and it, dc was more dc again in mm-hmm. a lot of ways um, but when I was there for one year, that was Trump was there and the city was like, Oh no. Cause the city's already balking under sort of a, like a, 
a col- colonial sort of situation with the government. Yeah. Um, they don't have their own budget. They don't have budget autonomy. Yeah, Every tax yeah, bit, representation, et cetera. Yeah. It, absolutely. And, and it it's interesting because it's one of those places where it should be like the beacon of American society, but in a way it is. Yeah. And not in a good way. It's basically, no, I think politically it functions as like a Potemkin village. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. Not, it, it doesn't exist as its own entity. It's sort of like a front that America shows like this is what America is Washington DC except the people who actually live yeah. in DC have no political power yeah that's all. why it's great to see like people yelling at uh, Kirsten Nilsson and all that kind of stuff and I like I like that I know a lot of those oh, people listen. Actually, okay but I think <laughs> that's actually a parallel to uh what we're talking about in terms of the way that politics are run in Canada because um you know you see New York Times columnists uh saying that you know yelling at uh, Trump administration officials in public is like this is just taking the discourse a little bit too far and it's like fuck you they're locking people in cages they should be yelled at they're lucky that they're not getting rotten food thrown at them um i kind of wish this is what we would do up north no i i I, and i'm i'm not being i'm not trying to be inflammatory when i say this but the idea that uh that john tory can go outdoors and make housing announcement after housing announcement and not build a single fucking unit of social housing in the entire time that he's been at city hall. Like, yeah, he, there's not a, a moment he should be able to walk outdoors and not have the sky darken with like rotten produce being thrown at him. That's ridiculous. But that's just the polite way that we do things up here. Yeah. There, there doesn't seem a lot of like social ramifications for, for political action. Oh, no, no, none whatsoever. And I think that part of that has to do with, and I don't mean um, any insult to the labor movement, movement in Canada, but there's not really a labor party in this country every uh, every political party is trying to capture this ever vanishing middle class vote and it's i think that that worked to some extent in like the the post bush era uh where the erosion of the middle class began to rapidly accelerate as they were destabilizing um long-held uh, financial laws but now there's just no excuse for not trying to mobilize labor and, and capture that vote. I think the fact that we try to find more in common in terms of like middle class aesthetics, living in the suburbs, having your kids go play on the playgrounds, swimming and ballet and soccer lessons, um, even even things like um, the child care benefit, which I'm not saying was a, a bad measure that the Trudeau government introduced. It still to me comes across as a very like, running towards capturing the middle class vote and incredibly cynical like there are many working class people that can't afford to have children this is not necessarily a priority for them whatsoever their priority is trying to get uh non-transient housing and with the latest budget that was introduced their answer to the housing crisis i mean they are talking about you know making um uh they are talking about making funding available uh, to build social housing. Apparently, that's part of the budget. But what really stood out to me reading through that budget was the uh, relaxation that they're placing in terms of how much you're allowed to take out of your RSPs, out of your basically your, your government-sponsored savings accounts, in order to make a down payment on your first home. Talk about a neoliberal solution. Or a 35-year mortgage. Huh? Talk about a neoliberal solution. Well, what, what is that besides a neoliberal solution? It's like you're, you're making it easier for people who already either A, have um, – like, if you have $35,000 available in your RSP, you're probably not worried about rental housing and what the costs are. I mean, you, you could be, but that's probably not your number one priority. For the most part, people who are worried about even trying to find housing in the first place don't have fucking RSPs. Like, that's a bit of a luxury. Um, the f- fact that we have arguments over, you know, how uh, 
long a mortgage should be stretched out, whether it should be 25 years or 30 or 35 years, like that is entirely a conversation on neoliberal politics and not a conversation on the material conditions of the working class. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we do have the NDP, <laughs> but I'm interested. <laughs> uh, well, so listen, Maine, I know that, um, I know that I, I have a lot of friends who work with the NDP and I don't, I don't necessarily have, um, problems with them just like i have a lot of friends in the liberal party i don't think i really have any friends in the conservative party but <laughs> uh no i actually had a, a a couple of liberal politicians have like reached out to me like through texts and dms and so forth like when i've been really hard on them and said like hey you know we are trying to work on things and i know that it doesn't seem like anything is getting done but we are trying to do work behind the scenes and i'm like i, I get Jody that wilson Rabel. it was not jordy uh, no I've, I've never met her i don't know her um get me in trouble over here but the same thing happens with NDP people. And I think um, I haven't really commented that much on the NDP because they've been practically non-existent. Right. And I know that everybody loves Jack Layton. I I personally... But he's dead, unfortunately. Well, <laughs> he is. And far be it for me to, to you know, uh, crap on somebody's legacy. But I think yeah. the, the biggest failure that Jack Layton had was in building a working class coalition across Canada. I think right. he developed... A, um, a sense of like optimism and togetherness. Mm. And to me, it comes across as a bit of a cult of personality. Right. The, the, I, and I'll tell you how I know the working class coalition failed is because in uh, the election after um, he uh, handed over the reins to his, uh, to his successor, the, uh, uh, the auto workers union ended up backing the liberal party. How, how in the fuck are you as a labor union going to back the, the most like, underhandedly corporate party that exists in this country it was such as it was a, a like it was it was there was two cynical things happening at the same time like a basically signaling that the ndp will never get elected so what is the point um but also b having this like naive perception that the uh the party that has that styles itself as canada's natural governing party but also the party that over and over and over just gets caught in these like these corporate backed scandals and you really think that the people who are descended from the family compact are going to have the workers' best interests at heart? Like, that is the dysfunction in Canadian politics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Actually, for our American listeners, we do have a lot of American And I'm sorry. The, the, no, no, I, wanna, I, I no, didn't name... Sorry. No, I, I want to step back. When I said... Producer, I just like, want to say one thing. Yeah. I said name the successor. The successor was uh, um, Nicole Turmel. Yeah. Uh, after Jack Layton passed away, then uh, Turmel took the reins with the NDP. Yeah. Um, and that was before uh, we had... Um, And that was before uh, Tom Mulcair, who, again, just made that really cynical drive towards um, earning the middle class vote and failed to develop a working class coalition. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's like they always say in the United States, they always say if uh, you could vote between a, a real Republican and a fake Republican, they'll vote for the real Republican. Yeah. 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 And that's the uh, the problem that the the, uh, the Democrats have. And I, th- I think um, I, I'm kind of encouraged in, in terms of what I'm seeing out of the United States. I know things are like bleak and just dystopic right now but at the very least the scales have fallen from people's eyes and i think people really understand that centrist politics will not save them like trying to build quote-unquote bipartisan solutions or trying to meet people where they're at or trying to see the other like i've been seeing this since uh the post-clinton years the idea that the point of having political parties is not to be in opposition to one another and not to like you know uh essentially establish dominance over one another's ideas, but to find a way to cooperate. And, but that, that's the exact opposite purpose of a political party. 
you, the purpose of a political party is to develop a coalition of voters who believe that their interests translate broadly to national interests. You're trying to supersede mm-hmm. your opposition. And I think what the acceleration out of the Trump years has done is help people understand that trying to meet Republicans where they're at will never happen. Like, you can't get along with these people. You can't cooperate. There's, they're not going to accept anything less than total cultural, religious, and legislative domination. Mm-hmm. To quote George Bush during the uh, the Iraq War, all these people understand his force. Yeah, right. And that's how you ought to treat the right wing. If that They only understand force and strength. As a matter of fact, I would say, like, they don't respect people who are, quote-unquote, bipartisan. Lindsey Graham, for example, um, during the time that John uh, McCain... Cuck. Was that? Cuck. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't use that term. I just wanted to, I just wanted to say what I know that the yeah. Trump people say about him. I, well, I, I the think the term that, is disgusting. Well, I mean, it, it is an awful term. But it's actually a very telling term because the term cuck means like we all we all know what it means. But it also speaks to like an insecurity about some other person, probably a person of color, fucking your wife. Mm-hmm. Like that's that is the underlying like Freudian implication there. And the idea of like trying to meet your enemies where they're at to them is so undesirable that it's akin to letting somebody else come in and fuck your wife. Um, but that that whole like John McCain maverick era, uh, during which you know he was joined by Lindsey Graham and other moderate Republicans, how did that work out for them? Lindsey yeah. Graham is one of the most like ferociously pro-Trump people that exists in the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I I'm not saying that you know uh, that progressives have to to be like that, but the encouragement that I'm getting out of the uh, uh, the DSA, the, the Democratic Socialists of America, is that. There is no centrism to be had. And I actually wrote about this in an article for McLean's, um, not this past year, but the year before, like for the, the January New Year issue. And I said, like, this is going to be the year that centrism falls apart. And it pretty much has. There is, I think there are, like, people from, like, the boomer generation and the Gen X generation that believe, like, we are supposed to, like, meet in the middle and get along. And I think everybody that's younger than about, I don't know, 40 knows that this is just, this is never going to be a possibility. Yeah. 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 Uh, all due to, through due disclosure, I actually worked for Third Way, which is uh, oh no, yeah, um, and uh, now I now I work uh, on some pretty radical projects. So I, it's it's interesting. So, so even I've made that transition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 even I've made that transition. Right, and, and the thing is, you know, they're not being backed by any sense of principle. They're not backed by principle, and the way that you know how is because the white evangelicals that I used to go to church with in Mm -hmm. South Florida are the very same people backing Trump. Like I remember during the Bill Clinton years, they they talked about him like he was the antichrist. I mean, every, every democratic president is going to be, and he was an evangelical. (coughs) He was, but from the South, he's, he's like, he's from Arkansas. Yeah. Who liked fried chicken. He liked everything from the South. He liked, he liked ham and eggs. The whole, he had all the cultural markers of the South, but they, Disrespect for women. Well, <laughs> there is that too. Um, what they didn't like about him, though, was that he had—I wouldn't even say progressive sensibilities. He had like some degree of sanity to mm-hmm. him. Like he wasn't going to outlaw abortion. Yeah, he was uh, "quote unquote" tough on crime, but he wasn't going to like lock every black person up in prison. You know, he had a tough foreign policy, but he wasn't going to like, you know, declare a crusade across the Middle East. I mean. Granted, you can say that American imperialism did essentially have that effect, but he wasn't just going to say the quiet part out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and they backed Donald Trump, the, the the very person who embodies, I think, everything that fundamentalist Christianity was constructed to oppose. 
they embrace him and, and you know that the only reason that they embrace him is because of his whiteness like there's literally yeah. no i grew up in a fundamentalist church like i know how these people think and the stuff they used to say about bill clinton and even say about barack obama you could apply that 10 times over to donald trump so it's really just his whiteness these are not people that you can rationalize with these are people that you have to defeat and overcome mm-hmm. now that's i think that's that wrong and strong thing is very true some people feel a lot of like you know i think that's why you're seeing a lot of sort of resurgence of sort of the fascist type elements in society and given that um that canada is 100 percent free of racism and <laughs> yes is a uh, hundred never encountered racism diversity in inclusive and yeah and as our as our prime minister says diversity requires trust he said diversity only works when there's trust I almost fell out of my chair. Okay, so for anybody that may not be familiar, um, I'm not sure what your American listenership is like, but I think it's fair to explain to them. So after uh, essentially um, evicting his former attorney general, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, but also um, uh, she was the Minister of Indigenous and Northern Affairs, right? Jane Philpott. Uh, after turfing them from caucus because uh, they essentially had principled objections to the closeness between the Trudeau government and SNC-Lavalin. Because they were, I think, open and very pointed with their objections, Trudeau turfed them from caucus. And he was visited by an organization called Daughters of the Vote um, that represents uh, women across this country that are politically active and, and do believe that uh, women's... I'm seeing Heidi shaking her head and rolling her eyes here. And I'm, let, me, let me get through this, okay? <laughs> So the Daughters of the Vote, this politically active women's organization, um, goes to Parliament Hill, and he explains to them that, you know, I, he, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, like, I didn't want to do this, but I felt like I couldn't trust them. And, and really, diversity only works when there's trust involved. I, I actually laughed. Like, I wasn't even upset. I'm like, you actually said it out loud. Thank you so much for telling the truth for once, you lying piece of shit. It felt like, relieving in a weird was. way. It was. It was cathartic. <laughs> because it's like... And the thing is, you know, and I should, you know, the be pot, very, the, pot, be, the lid of the was off the pot. You know, no, I should be honest about my background. Like, I actually worked on Trudeau's um, nomination campaign. Uh, so back uh, during the liberal leadership campaign during the Stephen Harper years, um, I worked on Trudeau's campaign. Like, there's pictures of me, like, you know, shaking hands with him, then phone banking at his office uh, in downtown Toronto. And I think where um, I I I got the first inkling, like, this dude doesn't actually care was at uh, the the Black Business and Professionals Association. He came out to give a speech, not to, to just the BBPA, but also to like the black community at large, to talk about the friendship between, the intents between you know his government and um, Canada's black communities. And he didn't talk about what it is that he intended to do for the community. He didn't talk about the uh, UN's International Decade for the Recognition of People of African Descent. He talked about his father's relationship with Jamaica's former Prime Minister, Michael Manley. We're talking about like 40-odd years ago. <laughs> Michael Manley? You have to reach all the way back to Michael Manley to have any... My dad had a black friend. Is that My, what he said? He, yeah, right. <laughs> I was just getting to that. He was basically reaching back 40 years to say, hey, my dad once had a black friend. Not and I'm like, he even had a black friend. Like, we're no. using like fatherly extrapolation. Yeah. But, so oh, that, someone that should have said, oh, and Castro fucked your wife. Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't get me in trouble out here, please. <laughs> I'm going to stick to the facts, all right? I'm sticking to what I know. And what I know is that that's what he said. All the other shit you're trying to bring into this conversation, get me fired out here. Talk about a Cubano. I'm going <laughs> to... Jesus Christ. Anyway, so that's... that's 
that is how I, 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 I got a little bit John Deez. And everything that I've, I've just been seeing nothing but evidence since that he doesn't actually care about our communities. And I think that when he finally says diversity only works if there's trust, I'm like, you have encapsulated political and corporate and media Canada in a very brief sentence. Thank you for doing that. Now we know the truth. Yeah, that was, it was, I actually, I've been and the watching funny part for a while. was I just like my eyes went, oh, I know. <laughs> I, the funny part was I was um, I was talking about this on social media. I was I was like, I can't believe he actually said that. But then you had liberal supporters who have shamrock or uh, sorry four leaf clover emojis in their profiles that were coming at me and trying to say, but diversity only does work if there's trust. <laughs> like if you can't bring people on your team that are not going to undermine you, then how can that work? But I'm like, you understand that what you're basically saying to me is that you you will only support an environment where people are not white if. They can be controlled by you. Like, think about what it is that you're saying here. You're you're telling me the truth about yourself, and yet you proposed to be a friend to my community. This doesn't work. Yeah. And like the the thing that was confusing to me as well, like all the ladies, lady liberals turning their backs and uh, all of this. I mean, right? So it then quickly slid into this like weird, like he fired them because they were women as well or something. I, listen, and I, then yeah, and this coinciding with the daughters thing, and I just thought, oh, I, you know. But the women, I mean, it's I... A bad, it's, it's a bad look. I, it is a bad look, but I think I think the, you know, female, I mean, maybe, whatever. Yeah. Women women liberals are... No, but because women liberals, um, mostly, whoever they are, just aiding... You got, you got me sweating now. That's what you're uh, <laughs> They're, like, <laughs> aiding and abetting his agenda, though, right? Well, okay. You could, you could for example, say that yeah, Jody Wilson-Raybould's record is not entirely spotless. You, you could say that Jane Philpott has a horrendous record when it comes to the missing and murdered Indigenous women's investigation. Like You, you could definitely say that. Um, at the same time, when you brand yourself on... When you say something like, because it's 2015, like when you, when you brand yourself on being... Um, progressive in terms of diversity and having representation not just gender but also like captain woke bay yeah like you have you have like you're you're very forward thinking on this whole representation thing and all of a sudden you, you all of a sudden representation doesn't work for you when people of those backgrounds that were not being represented before are now speaking up to you yeah so it, it's like are we supposed to be here as mascots or are we supposed to be here as full-fledged participants with personal agency sure. So I want to so um so I want to hear more about this mascot notion. So oh only because we yeah. got it so wrong. So David was here. <laughs> like I woke up this morning and I'm like, babe, I don't know anything about sports. You got to try and figure out some mascots to talk about. We had a brief conversation about and, mascots yeah, because, but we got it wrong. So tell us more. Okay, so Charles Charles M. Blow, who is a uh, columnist for the New York Times, uh, wrote an article. Basically saying that, um, I mean, the, the gist of the article was that, you know, white people have their folk heroes, even though they're problematic, even though, like, some of them are actual murderers, right? Uh, which is true. Like, the amount of times that I have to hear about how handsome, what the fuck, oh, uh, Ted Bundy. Who was, he was, he was not a, dreamy. He was not a handsome dude. Or, like, or the the best you could say is that. Bomber had a point. Ted, could, right. oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The sort yeah. of valorization. Right. The well, valor- that hits close to home, honey. You don't have to call me out like that. <laughs> yeah, you. You know what? Let your hair grow out a little bit longer. You do look a little bit Kaczynski, yeah, like yeah. Okay, so I, my barber's in Pennsylvania. Yeah, as I sit here and compare you to a mass murderer, but yeah, there is there is a, a bit of a valorization of of uh, you know uh, murderers in the American canon, and they happen to be white. 
So, um, which I think was a fair column to write, uh, especially if you're trying to draw ties between that and the way that the Trump administration is behaving. It's because like, they have no incentive to not behave this way. They are going to be valorized regardless. But then uh, I guess uh, one or maybe several readers asked him, well, are there any killers that are valorized in the black community? Now, th- listen, this is why when you write a column, like I try to do this myself. If I write a column, I let the column speak for itself. And if people want to like get at me, like, you know, have feedback over social media or whatever, I might respond to them on DMs. But very rarely will I try to have a conversation with them about my article and the same tweets that the article took place in. He thought about it real hard, like racked his brain. And his answer was <laughs> Nat Turner. Now, can you? So let me, I let this, me get this straight. So you can you, you explain Nat Turner a little bit as well? I mean, I, I mean, I I'm pretty sure most people, people should know, about know Turner's but, rebellion. So Nat Turner yeah. is a former slave that basically fomented a rebellion. Um, he, he basically tried to you know uh, uh, get himself and his his, his comrades free. Um, that is a long and short of it. I don't think we really have to get into it. But in the course of of Turner's rebellion, which only lasted a few days, um, there were women and children killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he said, he called Nat Turner a serial killer. Those are the words that he used. Even on the even okay, taking taking away, let's just take away the whole revolutionary aspect of Turner's rebellion. The words serial killer actually mean something. He was not serially killing people. It was the best you could call it is like a mass slaughter. Political violence. <laughs> but it's not political. It's, it's, I mean, to the yeah. extent that he was, it was right. Probably, if I you mean, take that's away the fact that he was uh, an enslaved person <laughs> trying to like violently overthrow the system that guaranteed he was going to be in bondage for life and his children and his children's children, sure, you could call that political violence if you take that all out of the picture. But once you bring slavery into it, which is the entire context of Turner's Rebellion, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. And then um, I that's guess one step away from slaves had it better. Oh my! Well, the, here's. I mean, is, it really is. This is what I'm getting to next, actually. So, because he had such tremendous pushback on that, he says, "Okay, okay, 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 fine. My bad. Technically, Nat Turner is not a serial killer. But what about the Haitians killing all of those French during the Revolution? I don't know if you guys heard about that. Yeah. He be, okay. So, uh, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, um, hero, which yes, he is a hero, uh, <laughs> gave an gave an order uh, to essentially massacre the remaining French on the island of Saint-Domingue, which I guess at this point was, was Haiti. Now, if, if you know anything um, about General Rochambeau, then you should know why... You, I want to phrase this correctly so that I'm not coming across as inflammatory. Like, I'm not saying, you know, mass killing is justified. But I think... No place for inflammation here. <laughs> None here whatsoever. Well, listen, however you behave on your podcast, you know, that's got nothing to do with me and my integrity. But... Um, Okay, but if you if you know anything about the uh, the Haitian Revolution, which is not which is not like it wasn't a quick event, the Haitian Revolution took place over the course of one ten years. Like it was a very long and bloody and arduous revolution, which actually succeeded. It was the only um, successful slave revolution in modern history. There were um, there was a plot by the French to overthrow Dessalines' rule, uh, to overthrow black rule essentially, and bring one of the most um, bloody war criminals that France had to offer to basically like reinstall him or to, to install his rule on the island. Now, this is a rumor. This, there's many interpretations of this, but the long and short of it is at least a 1,000 or some estimates go as high as about 5,000 French were killed. What that's con- been conflated into is that uh, the Haitians killed all the white people that were left on the island of Haiti. So, therefore, it's a genocide. So, that's what Charles Blow basically said is that, you know, that the Haitians <laughs> killing white people was a genocide. But the actual historical context to it was 
uh, actually know the English um, and other Europeans who helped the Haitians in this rebellion were protected. It was the French that were massacred. And that's because they were trying to politically undermine the uh, the black government that had just been installed so that they could be re-enslaved by the French. Yeah. So what the fuck did you think was going to happen? It was a Project Gladio situation, like a stay beyond behind army. Yeah, kind of, yeah, 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 exactly. It was like – and the thing is like when you have that kind of mercy extended to you, like, oh, listen, okay, so the fighting's over. We won. Let's just put together a government that's going to work for everybody now. Sounds like, like Venezuela. A little bit, you think? Uh but this is but this is the, but this is the story of uh, imperialism and counter imperialism uh, throughout the Western canon, which is that when the people that you try to th- when the people finally throw off the yoke and uh, are able to win self determination, you have to be you have to create like larger and larger and larger mythologies. So to the point where the killing of a thousand people, who again arguably were trying to undermine the rule of the government that was just established. The killing of that uh, that thousand people becomes three thousand, and then five thousand, and ten thousand, and whoever knows how how many, and it, it qualifies as a genocide. The fact that a New York Times, a black New York Times reporter, would be willing to repeat that, which is like that, is a white supremacist myth that's been pervasive about Haiti for over a hundred years now. So the fact that a black reporter would repeat this tells me a couple things. A, that mediocrity is well rewarded because if, if you're mediocre in terms of black history, then you can still you can you can you're qualified to talk about black history. But also if you will do what if as long as you can like piss people off inside the lines of like blackness or inside the lines of like, you know, like Latin culture, etc. If you can piss those people off, but avoid pissing off your white readers, it's okay. But the moment that you take a step too far, like you, you, you could never, I couldn't, I can't imagine like a Charles Blow making that egregious an error about like the Russian Revolution. Could you imagine like what kind of pushback he'd get? The, They'd fire his ass. He's, I, I would say the only white equivalent <laughs> to this is JD Vance. I mm, no, I don't think so. I don't, okay. No, no, I, no, no, I don't think so because I think no, but JD, it's not of equivalent. Strength, I don't think in any way. I don't know. It's not a strength because I feel like JD, like he's got an agenda here, right? Yeah. Like he's willfully misinterpreting, um, like working class, like the not just the intentions of working class people, but the character of them. Interpretly, it, it purposely misinterprets them to feed a media narrative that's required to say, well, sure, we can get rid of Donald Trump, but what about all these angry white people? As if like every working class white person in the United States is, is by nature a Trump supporter. Yeah. And I think it's also like, it's very like uh, patronizing, as if as if like as if poor white people are too stupid to understand their own best interests. Yeah. So I wouldn't even say it's a JD Vance situation because I think like he's like he knows what he's doing and he's he's maliciously twisting a narrative. Whereas I feel like a, a guy like Charles Blow, I don't think he's doing the stuff on purpose. I think he just doesn't know. But because he has the New York Times byline, is confident in speaking on Black History when he knows nothing about it. And the the wild part to me. It was like I saw people like uh, Jonathan Katz and a couple of other scholars in Haitian history that had to go in and correct them. So, like, you say something that is so fucking stupid that you have white scholars stepping in to say, uh, bro, bro, no, you're, you're taking this too far. Like, nobody asked you to do that. Let's just walk this back a little bit. That tells me how, how bad things have gotten in terms of mascots operating in journalism. Yeah, bro. and as a, as a teacher of genocide... <laughs> Not not necessarily a how to, but a sort of what to do about it. There's it's so just so everyone knows that killing on the basis, or actually it doesn't even have to be killing, but 
bracket that targeting on mm-hmm. the basis of political uh, political affiliation, no matter how many people are killed, will never constitute a genocide. And so, well, yeah, yeah exactly. And I, just to be all legalistic. About okay, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you're you're the legal scholar. No, I'm here. support, but this goes. Yeah, you're yeah. the legal scholar. But it's just here. Fur- a further that. sort of the. I yeah. think the rhetoricalization of of language like genocide in these in these situations. Is it's also a funny. well. I think it's like it's a moralization yes. of what it is that oppressed like what means are available to oppressed people uh, to achieve freedom, right? And just like you said earlier, this is a you know this is a conversation that you could have in Venezuela, but you could say that's this for like multiple South American countries. You can also say this. Uh, in Africa, you know, <clears throat> if you want to have conversations about, say, uh, Burkina Faso or about uh, the Belgian or the the post-Belgian Congo, etc., like these are when when um, I I see people describe African nations as as, uh, as backward or violent or in constant conflict and so forth, and it's like I f- I feel like having these like these broad and or like these these flattening conversations about what does and does not constitute genocide or what is or isn't a moral means of yeah. warfare, it's it's there to stop people who are in oppressive conditions from achieving freedom in a way that doesn't offend Western sensibilities. No, absolutely. So you may or may not know, but I, I spent six months living in Freetown, Sierra Leone working. Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Working. I did this between law school and my doctoral degree. And I, and I had already been highly critical of international criminal institutions before mm-hmm. this, but it's sort of like radically, I, you know, I came in a critic, but I, but I left a, almost genocidal myself because of the anger I sort of, you know, having just occupied that. It's an institution that does precisely what you're saying. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so it wasn't obviously Sierra Leone and which was intricately bound up, of course, with the, um, with Liberia at the time, um, the conflict was played out and, and me probably, you may or may not know this as well, but the large, the highest percentage of investigators on the ground who were working for the court were actually RCMP officers, mm-hmm. which is... That's another means by which Canada sort of gets away with the, the nice guy... Yeah. Um, P, like, the, the nice guy PR campaign that Canada enacts is so duplicitous because we, like, we don't... We're not, like, the blunt force object. Like, we're not the U.S. military. But we do provide the administrative apparatus to keep these countries in shackles... To oh, the absolutely. West forever, yeah, yeah. We yeah, did yeah. the exact same thing in Haiti. Like, you know, Canada did provide troops uh, for the overthrow of uh, Jean Bertrand Aristide, but I think what was more damaging was um, the uh, the military and uh, civilian administrators that kept his successor in place, and also I think to an extent, like, uh, continued the exploitation of Haitian resources to the to detriment of Haitians actually living in the country. And I would yeah, say the, there was a large majority of or a plurality of Canadians on K four as well in Kosovo. So that was. Oh no, they're everywhere. I mean, Canadians are, are at the ev- forefront yeah. of these interventions Every, and the maintenance. And, and, but the thing is, that's how we come by this uh, "quote unquote" peacekeeping yeah. uh, personality that we've branded ourselves with. Yeah. And I, I think once you take out peacekeeping, or what, if you stop thinking about it in terms of peacekeeping, because we think that administration is necessarily maintaining order, but what order is that that we're trying to maintain? No, absolutely. I mean, it, it was is, utter imperialism. It's a form yeah. of hegemonic violence that you, but you just don't do it through the force of arms. Well, it's and you know people in you know can talk about it as neocolonialism or whatever, and there there is a sense in which that's absolutely true, and the kind of and so while we didn't use the language of of genocide in Sierra Leone, the language of barbarism was right. the thing that was on everyone's tongue you know yeah yeah, yeah. That's a and loaded term 
I, barbarism. Yeah, well, it is. It's like uh, that's a like heart of darkness term, I believe. No, the idea. Yeah, it was. It was just you know the focus was very much on uh, you know the chopping off of limbs, and only real savages would do that, etc. And all of that was there to allow, of course, the diamond and rubber, etc., industries to keep. Going. Right. Anyway. Well, okay. Just to uh, just to get back to. Oh my God! I creation revolution. Sorry, rewinding in my head. So we were no, it's all right. So we were now we were talking about uh, the Haitian Revolution and and kind of how that worked with the French, Charles Blow, and how he was uh, discussing Nat Turner and sort of how the certain people of certain communities are are picked by sort of establishment figures or by people on the right to mm-hmm. sort of represent them in a way that is not indicative of the actual reality. Of well, here's situations. the thing is like, I, I, and I, um, I don't like, and I thought about this before. Like I don't like criticizing. I don't like having black community conversations outside the black community. But I think when you, when you, when you take conversations outside the community and then you uh, vilify your own people to create some sort of moral equivalence, mm-hmm. like that has to be called out, mm-hmm. you know, for what it is. And I don't, I don't think like people like that do that on, per- like there's other people like, like a Candace Owens, for example, who is doing this maliciously. And I think like making herself the heat shield or like the, the face of a movement that I, I think she's like the best gift to the alt-right because she can then use her identity and say, but I'm a black woman, so how can you... And some people, like, because liberals love this idea of, like, representation over materiality, then they'll be like, oh, wow, I guess we can't really criticize her. When it's like, no, this is an actual evil human being. Like, she is also a white national... She she might be doing this for grift. She might not believe what she's actually saying. I don't really give a fuck. It's just the effect that she has, right? So uh, I I don't think that... um, a Charles Blow was anything like a Candace Owens. I think it's more like he, because he's steeped in this sort of like liberal centrism where you have to see both sides of an issue. If you're if you're trying to like parse things out and see the side of your oppressor or see the side of other people's oppressors to try to come to what you believe is a you know a logical consensus, you've you fucking lost. Like you have lost your moral high ground. Uh, uh, there's a uh, professor um, who worked with I believe it was University of Texas. Um, his name is uh, Dr. Tommy Curry. You know, and he wrote a a book called The Man Not. And, you know, he's there's like some people like him a lot. Some people absolutely hate him because he does uh, interrogate. And I, and you can say whether it's fair or unfair. I'm like, it's not, don't leave that up to me. But he does interrogate intersectional feminism uh, quite a bit. But I, but I think he does that in service of talking about whether black men can be seen as historical victims yeah. in America's oppressive experiment both with slavery but also like in the post-slavery area uh, you know during reconstruction jim crow and in the present day can black men actually be seen as victims i think that's a worthwhile question to ask but he asked the question about revolutionary violence during a lecture where he talked about django unchained uh and people's reaction to the movie django unchained and, and whether it's realistic because it's like if you are an enslaved person in order to achieve the means to your freedom can you talk your way out of it or does it require violence i.e are white people going to have to die in order for us to be free? Which, again, is a very fair question to ask. And uh, what's this guy's name? Rod Dreher? This, like, yeah, this... Rod Dreher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, he... a, it's Rob Dreher. He is. Rob uh, yeah, Dreher. Yeah, Rob yeah. Dreher. Um, he's actually a, he's a frequent target on Chapo Trap House. He's yeah. one of their in-house <laughs> punching bags. I only recently found out about him. And it's like I've, I've read some of his stuff. This dude's just a fucking goof. But, you know, he uh, – you know, he, he sent a brigade uh, after uh, Tommy J. Curry. And, you know, people were, like, calling the university and harassing him. And I, I'm i pretty sure he had to, like, you know, leave his house 
uh, for a little while with his family because of the uh, the threats that he was getting. Um, and the university didn't stand behind him. You know, they were like, well, we don't really approve of this language. But, it's like, but this is a tenured professor who's investigating, who's a philosophy professor investigating a philosophical question, mm-hmm. a, a valid one. Mm-hmm. You won't even stand behind him. And so now he's actually going to end up moving to Scotland. Now he's, he's leaving his university to go to Scotland, partially because he does not feel safe having these conversations inside of American universities. And that's pretty much what happens when you go down this moral equivalence road. If you can't admit to yourself, there is no other side to be seen when we're talking slavery and hundreds of years of oppression. Sometimes violence is going to be required. Sometimes ugly things are going to have to happen in order to secure people's freedom. If you can't agree with that, then what are you doing in media? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And these are the same people who would, you know, say, oh, the first Republican was Abraham Lincoln. Well, Abraham Abraham Lincoln did a hell of a duty on the South, right? Uh, well, here's the other thing too. I think, but I think um, there's also this liberal tendency to like when somebody does a a, a human or even like a half decent or a sensible <laughs> thing, it's like you want to put a halo on their head. So this is just like this this Lincoln hagiography that exists. Right. Well, it's like, but Lincoln like wasn't especially fond of black people, and the 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 purpose of the Civil War, and like I can't even believe we still have yeah. to explain this. The purpose of the Civil War was not to free the slaves. Absolutely. The purpose of the Civil War was to preserve the Union. Yeah. Like it, he he said himself that if that could be done while keeping every slave slave in bondage, he would. Um, but because we want to believe this idea that his that history bends like it, it bends towards the arc of justice, we, then we want to retroactively place halos upon people that do the right thing in a context where they had to. Uh, so I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that this, this conversation about whether Lincoln was a Republican or whether the Republican party is the, the party of, um, that was against slavery, that is very much liberals fault because they cannot be honest with themselves. No, because there's something about liberalism that requires this progress narrative, right? So we yeah. have to always be marching towards greater justice or whatever. And, and so they, it just cannot withstand that sort of criticism. Well, it, it can't withstand friction. I think yeah. that's the... the yeah, tension. One, yeah. one of the reasons that I... Um, like, because I, I, I worked in the financial industry and like I was raised in like a, you know, like a, a, like a lower working class household, you know, and we were like just like everybody else that came from our community, like it's all about upward mobility. It's all about education and, and so on. Like, and I understand that ethic, except there's just, there's no egalitarian that or egalitarianism that is ever going to exist without class friction. And because liberals are like, they're just allergic to any kind of friction whatsoever. They have to retroactively cast actors in history as progressives like everybody was trying to move us towards a better world a better life for everybody etc except when they fucking don't yeah uh so i i and this is why i'm talking about like you know we we have a um a lack of a a labor-based party in canada i think because we're so in, in canada we're so in love with the idea that we try to do the right things at the best of times that we don't believe that there's a necessity for a labor-based movement. I, there are labor unions that exist. There are labor collectives. But I think a broad like labor-based party, that I would like to see that in my lifetime. I, I don't know that it will because we're allergic to these tough conversations. Yeah, I know. And I, I, I think there is a sense that we just don't have a working class or something like that. And whether that's because everyone has access to healthcare or whatever, I'm not sure. But can I just check what time we're at? Because yeah. I feel like we're... Oh, damn. Where, what time is it? One hour? Yeah. Okay. Another few minutes. It was just, I could go on forever. Or we could go on. I mean, I'm not saying anything. I just want to listen to you. <laughs> but can I, can I, 
can I ask you so just a couple more things because we don't we don't want to make these episodes too long. We'll edit this out. This, actually, this is amazing. I, I no this is fucking amazing. Uh, actually, you're, this is a pleasure. It's such a pleasure. I feel like we're just having a regular. Episode. No, it's yeah, yeah. really great. I this, I'm loving this. I but can I so I just so I'm looking at your tweet about um Cornell West. <laughs> and, and I just want to ask you about it because it's one of your most recent tweets and it okay. seems juicy. Um mm. do you want <laughs> Tell okay. us about that. So there's a uh, okay. I consider um the reparations conversation in the US to not really be my business because I'm from Canada. So I lived in the United States for, you know, for quite a while and like I understand the cultural context behind uh, the reparations conversation. But it's like, ultimately, um, I don't have skin in the game, and Americans do. So I, I don't consider it to be, like, I can't follow it on one side or the other. I, I have a lot of people that say to me that, I, you know, they don't like this ADOS movement, American Descendants of Slaves, because um, there's some xenophobia wrapped up in it, which I can, I, okay, yes, I see that. Um, because, you know, it's it's uh, divisive and separates groups. Well, I, I don't know. Like, you being, a, a you know, a lawyer yourself, or at least a legal scholar, mm-hmm. um, I hope I got that right. I don't know how. how, do, I, how do, I'm how do, not a lawyer. I how actually. How do law professors describe themselves? So, so most law professors are lawyers. Right. I, um, I have uh, been withstanding being part of like the legal court system. So I'm a legal academic. Okay. So you being a legal academic, I, I just want to make sure I have the, the nomenclature correct here. I'm being politically correct and making sure that I tick all the idpol check marks here. Okay. All right. Just uh, call her deep state. <laughs> <laughs> you being an agent of the deep state. You understand, you know, that uh, if you have a, a grievance to be addressed or a debt to be settled, that you have to create a class of plaintiffs. And I think that um, the ADOS movement is essentially legitimizing descendants of American slaves as a class of plaintiffs against the U.S. government. I think that makes complete and total sense. Um, but then there's also, like, uh, there's a butting of heads with Pan-Afrin- Pan-Africanists who don't believe... I think, first of all, they're very pessimistic about the United States ever settling up its its debt and obligations. Never going to happen. To the Senate, yeah, I mean, I'd like to see it happen. It, it's never it, gonna may, happen. it may, it may not. I don't know. We, we thought that we thought there would never be a black president. Like I remember, how many people were yeah. saying to me that this will never happen in our lifetimes, and it did. I worked on that campaign. I I remember collapsing yeah. when we won Pennsylvania. Like just just collapse. I fell to the ground and yeah. cried. It was just I was like I can't believe this happened in my life. It is, you know. It, listen, man, when Obama was right. inaugurated, but he's I not ADOS. Who, me? No. no <laughs> Barack, Barack yeah, wasn't. I'm thought... looking at you and I'm, I'm guessing you're not. ADOS. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but Obama's not. Uh, but Obama, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, his, you know, his, father's yeah. From, his father's from Kenya and his, his mother was a white lady. Uh, so, no, he's not, he's not ADOS. So. Yeah. Well, not just a white lady, but, you know, a, a white lady oh, with no. Yeah. Uh, no descendants, uh, no slave lineage whatsoever. So yeah, I get she that. wasn't even like, she wasn't even Catholic Irish. I, you know what? I don't even know what her background was, and I never really yeah. cared to find out. Yeah, she's Scotch-Irish. Scotch-Irish? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's actually more like my family then. We, I, we have Scotch-Irish people in my mm-hmm. background, too. But So there are, there are Pan-Africanists who believe that this will never happen. But also that you know um, this conversation is divisive in many ways because we should figure out how to create um, kinship and ties across our communities, not just in the United States, but in the Caribbean, in, in, the, in Europe, in Africa, et cetera. Um, and I can see the merits of that as well. Mm-hmm. I consider myself um, more of a Garveyite than anything else. Mm-hmm. Like I, 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 I think I believe very heavily in a Thomas Sankara type of pan-Africanism. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Um, you so I understand, like, I get both sides. <laughs> the The only thing is, um, when when Cornell West, you know, uh, gets up on a stage or in, in front of a lectern and says things like, you know, the Caribbeans didn't have Jim Crow, like Jamaicans didn't have Kim Crow, Jim Crow, Bahamians, uh, Bayesians, or whoever else he said did not have Jim Crow. It's like technically, technically, if you're if you're saying did they have Jim Crow laws, well, no, they didn't. Be- that's because there was a type of hegemony exercised mm. in the Caribbean islands, and I think to an extent it was exercised. It's not has been, but is exercised here in Canada as well. Was exercised in Europe that you didn't necessarily need segregative codes, mm. like you didn't have to codify it into mm. law, because the way that uh, political and financial financial disenfranchisement existed, you didn't have to create that. Mm-hmm. You also didn't have to have like roving gangs of people looking to lynch black folks um for you know speaking out of turn not getting out of the way of a white person or getting out of a white person's way when they're walking down the street Mm -hmm. making eye contact with a white woman you didn't necessarily have to do that because the structure was already so heavily codified in a way that disenfranchised us financially and disenfranchised Mm -hmm. us uh from owning land disenfranchised us from voting you didn't necessarily have to do that like the, the most powerful type of political power there is is when you do not have to exercise violence. Invisible power is right. You know, the invisible fence is the strongest one. Right, it, exactly. So, um, I give an example of this, and you can look this up. Very recently, like very recently, um, reparations payments in the UK ended to the aristocracy to compensate them for the loss of income that they experienced when slavery was abolished. That was one of the conditions by which the Great Britain. Uh, or the British Empire abolished slavery. Every day that Buckingham House stands is right. a day against the people. Pretty much, but it's not just. That's Buckingham. my opinion. <laughs> well, it's not just Buckingham Palace, though. Like the 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 ancestors of the British aristocracy and many rich uh, British people, for example, Benedict Cumberbatch, like his family um, was enriched off of black slavery in the Caribbean. You know, his family would have been one to that stood to be compensated. Um, by the reparations payments that the British government agreed to in order to abolish slavery in the first place. But that also means that black people in the UK were out of their tax money. They were paying taxes to mm. compensate the descendants of people that were enslaved or that were their uh, their ancestors slavers. How fucked up is that? That's, you know, we do that in the States with farm subsidies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is okay. That's, that is a, that's fair. That's, that's also true. But when you, when you, for example, um, my family uh, in in uh, Portland, Jamaica, lost a huge plot of land to Errol Flynn's family. Errol I, we, Flynn, wow. yeah, Errol Flynn, the the yeah, actor. No, no, I don't. Yeah, his his descendants actually live on a plot of land adjoining Peter Pan. <laughs> also, what um, didn't he play the Red Baron in the movie? I don't know. Anyway. No, that's interesting. Okay, so uh, any, anyway, he's a, a film actor from the black and white era. His descendants actually live on a plot, plot of land in Jamaica, adjoining my family's. Why? Because my great-grandmother was not able to inherit a plot of land from her father because she's a black woman. We were were, uh, alienated from owning property across the British Empire. We were alienated from voting. So, like, very similar conditions to Jim Crow existed across the Caribbean and in the UK as well. But the level of violence that that had to be exercised to enforce Jim Crow didn't have to be enforced across the British Empire. I think the only – and I I did mention this in the tweets. I think the only – example that i can think of in the modern world where you had to exercise that level of violence and this is like more of a geographic and a demographic um reason more so than like this is how much we hate them is apartheid era south africa because 
um, you're basically outnumbered um, yeah. by black South Africans. You have to exercise not just political violence, but actual physical state violence. That's the closest conditions to uh, the, uh, the Jim Crow South that I could possibly imagine. But to say that Jim Crow didn't exist in these countries, it's not to say, hey, there's a difference between us and them. And this is what it what is basically saying or, or signaling to the minds of people who, in your audience is that uh, black people in the Caribbean, black people in Europe, they don't experience racism like we do. Our racism is um, more oppressive and, out, and and unique. And it's just, I, I don't like getting into those kinds of comparisons because then you're erasing the experience that other people have gone through. So that was the only problem I had. Like, yeah, I don't no have... one gets the gold in the oppression Olympics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, I, I'm not saying that to like, to, to bash ADOS people or say that they don't have a case. I'm just saying like, if you are going to make a case for why it is that, um, you know, if there are reparations paid, it has to go to people who descend from, uh, um, formerly enslaved people like if you're going to make that case then it it has to be one that clarifies rather than obscures and I think when you say things like they didn't have Jim Crow it obscures ahead of clarifying like you're saying like they didn't have it as bad which is not quite true so I want to get on to the question so this that was a that was a great answer and I, I think people really need to to look at how that plays out and it's it's a unique look into like it's almost of... like when people say that you know racism is, isn't as bad in Canada yeah well, it's like, but we have a different cut. Like, yeah. you know, we may not, you know, we do experience police violence. RC here. Cola racism. <laughs> yeah, we have like the, the COTS racism. Yeah. We don't have the Coca Cola racism. But um, when uh, people say that racism doesn't exist here, mm-hmm. uh, like maybe uh, police violence doesn't exist here to the extent that it does in the United States, but that's because gun violence and police killing mm-hmm. don't exist to the extent. Like, there's mm-hmm. a different type of culture. If you say that, like, um, uh, you know, that uh, we didn't have uh, segregation. Well, we did. If you said that we didn't have redlining, well, essentially we did. Like the only thing that, the only difference you can really draw here is that the level of state and interpersonal violence is not the same as mm-hmm. the U.S. And I think that's also because the hegemonic power that Canada inflicts upon its black population, being that we're so much smaller mm-hmm. uh, demographically than in the U.S., they don't really have to. Yeah. 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 So I want to ask about Canada and, and racism in Canada because I think you've done a beautiful job of illustrating it in one of your recent pieces. And um, I have always – I've kind of been onto this tip a little bit for a while. I, I noticed like, oh, Rebel Media, where is that from? Who are these people? <sighs> Who is this Gavin McInnes? Who yeah. is this Lauren Southern? Who is this Faith Goldie? And – one of the things that's hurt me the most is that a lot of them are Ukrainian, which is I don't know what's up with that. What is up with that? Yeah, what is yeah. up with that? The the Slavs and the Irish are full of the racism, and uh, it, it Listen, breaks man, my like, heart. I, I have no problem with the Irish, but I wish I wish the Irish could just shut the fuck up about Irish slavery. Yeah. Well, the same <laughs> no, with the not Slavs. Slaves. You were not Slav. Did not mean slave. Wait, I, you know, <laughs> I always find it interesting and bless them, you know. And I'm I'm not an Irish Newfoundlander. I feel it's weird for me to say that, but um. Yeah, Only because my yeah yeah the right side. So <laughs> God, I'm, I'm joking. Getting in trouble with the Irish. I'm joking. I my dad married once, and now we're all. But the 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 tendency, like, so that what's interesting is that um the activism of my which is wonderful, really great work that my Irish colleagues are doing, like around apartheid in Israel, mm-hmm. and just Palestinian rights in general, but it's always been interesting Yo, to me I, as an aside. By the way, I woke up this morning yeah. and I saw the news that Netanyahu has very likely won yeah. the election. And yeah. my heart sank. It's like, yeah, it, it's, it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> That's the difference I, between a war in Iran and not. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, or actually, I, but the thing is, I'm not even thinking about the war. I'm not. I'm not even thinking about that. I'm yeah. thinking about like, what is it going to be like for the Palestinians now? This is a person who basically promised that you know the the remainder of of territories that we have talked about occupying, we're just going to go ahead and take them over now. Which to me is like for everybody that's been talking about a two state solutions for as long as I've been fucking alive. Now you understand there will not be a two state solution. There is no two state yeah, solution in mind. There will clear. only be the apartheid state. No, and there hasn't been it's a two state solution has been dead for 25 well, years at minimum, but 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 It's a liberal yeah. pipe dream Absolutely. to try and yeah. again cut that bargain to meet people where they're at. And it's like you cannot meet fascism and apartheid where it's at yeah you have no, to defeat absolutely. it yeah but it's always been i've wondered i mean maybe i shouldn't say this and we should cut it maybe that's too much because i don't have a, a real thought direction here but it's always been interesting to me the way in which like irish nationalism no it is interesting and i'm you know and the, and the english are horrible whatever and but the 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 sense of whether or not it means identifying with having been a slave in some mm-hmm. sense this like the the sense that irish nationalism under british colonialism yeah. has been the thing that's Listen, driven say, their sense you of can say connection that the, you can say that the british were pieces of, like oppressive yeah pieces of shit you can say that you can say that you suffered under the british you can talk about the black and tans like you, you can talk about the massacres you can have that conversation without likening yourself. To no, slaves. absolutely. And so, because if you're if you're if what you're saying is because like there's there's all these stories about like you know um, about Irish on slave ships being thrown overboard, et cetera, et cetera, and, and 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 what the conditions were like once they got to the United States and them being enslaved. It's like there's a difference between indebted servitude and slavery. With indebted servitude, there is the possibility of manumission. You can work your way out of servitude. In terms of chattel slavery, you're not a person that can earn freedom you're a piece of furniture like you are more the word like what does the word chattel actually mean you are not a human being you are a thing that is owned and everything that comes from you will also be owned your children and your children's children imagine what it's like to be born and live and die under slavery and know that that is the fate that your descendants and all of their descendants are going to face as far as you know the irish do not have knowledge of that so for them like every time i see like conor mcgregor tweet some dumb shit and like a bunch of uh, Irish people under his comments, like, yeah, talk about that. And you know, we don't complain about that, do we? It's like you're fucking cl- no, complaining about it complain right about now, it all, all bam, the bam. time. Because if you weren't complaining about it, I wouldn't have to hear it. Fuck y'all. Anyway, no, I'm sorry, I've, t- I've taken you off track. I'm from Eastern Pennsylvania, I, I've heard it a million times. Okay, oh, yeah, it's just like I, I get it. It's hard, but you also have, and you like, would think you would yeah. think that for for groups of for groups of people, uh, you know, that suffered under British colonial rule. Yeah. That A, we can understand boundaries between one another, and B, we could have a little bit of class solidarity here. But if you have to co-opt our experiences to get people to feel sorry for you, it makes you a piece of shit. Yeah. And it, that's the thing is that rather than drawing empathy from it, you're, you're drawing separation. Then, yeah. then you're not getting it. Yeah. You're not getting it. So I, I want to ask you about, about Canada because I think that there is something going on here. And, I, and I've not been able to identify why or, or how it has happened. But I think it's actually because the grifters get free health care and they can just kind of float. <laughs> but I, I think there might be something else to it. And can you explain your piece and kind of explain yeah, your take so on how that what I was th- Okay, what I, what I really wanted to get at in my piece, um, you know, I've had a really hard time writing this year. And I think it, it, a lot of it had to do with when I've written about white supremacy in the past, I get hate mail. But there was something about the time when I wrote in January – um, that the MAGA hat is a symbol of hate. Like, to, I, I concluded the article by basically saying if the hood fits, wear it. Like, to me, the MAGA hat is the same as a KKK hood. 
all you're doing is just you're not obscuring your face, but you are signaling to people that you are not to be trusted. And also the people who are looking at that hat, like they shouldn't feel safe anywhere because there's 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 people like me around that wear this hat. And, and a lot of people feel the way that I do. Right. It's a it's a means of terrorizing without physical violence. Um, I got so much hate mail after writing that, which normally I could deal with. But when they start talking about my family, when I got death threats, uh, not only a couple of weeks prior to the article being written, like it got under my skin. Like it really it shook me up a little bit. Now I'm just like, like if, uh, Apple Care doesn't scare me. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not worried about you guys. You know, I, I, I don't. I don't. I like the 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 racially derogatory language, like the n words, and people calling me all kinds of subhuman. Like, I don't care because I like you're not on my level. If you actually had an if you had an argument or a counterexample or something where you could prove actually this is not true and here's why, then that's the conversation you'd want to have with me. But the overwhelming and I'm not going to say I didn't have people trying to have that conversation. And mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, I will talk to them. But the majority, like the overwhelming majority of people that were coming at me after I wrote that article were basically calling me a, a subhuman savage. Mm-hmm. Um, that did get under my skin. And um, I, when I look at like, you know, the, uh, uh, the alt-right functioning out of, um, out of Alberta and the extent to which like white nationalism has infected the United Conservative Party or uh, the uh, the Quebec legislature tabling a bill that they they say it's you know it's it's striking down religious symbols in public and what it really is is oppressing people's uh, religious expression as long as you're not a white French Catholic um, then you cannot wear something that expresses your religion in public like when I see stuff like that I want to write and I want to comment on it and I had this like reluctance to write again and what I wasn't being truthful with myself about was that I'm 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 not avoiding writing about this because I'm you know I I it's below me or because it's going to blow over I'm not writing about it because I was actually scared to bring more waves of hatred upon myself so that's what I did in this article is I got really truthful I'm like I actually um I'm, I feel scared to write about this stuff but the thing is I actually have something to lose like I have a family I have children I have a fiance and we've had a lot of conversations about like hey you know if what at what limit do you like what limit have you drawn for yourself where you say i'm going to stop writing about this stuff mm-hmm. or i'm going to take a step back because if it's endangering your family like your family has to come first and i completely agree with that um but when uh journalists who don't face those kinds of threats who don't have people calling them those kinds of names um who aren't you know uh, uh essentially threatening you with the kind of violence that uh, that that people who attended the mosque in Christchurch or who attended the mosque in Quebec City, if they're they're not like low key trying to threaten you with that level of violence, if you don't face that in your day to day life, once you turn off your computer and go home, then why aren't you talking about it? Why is it that I have to talk about it? Like why is it like a Fatima Sayed has to talk about it, mm-hmm. or a Bashir Mohammed out in Edmonton, and he doesn't really have like a media um, organization behind him the way that I have. McLean's that has my back. He doesn't have anybody. He freelances completely on his own. He tweets this stuff completely on his own. Bashir Muhammad, uh, if you don't know about him, you know he's a, he's a writer out in Edmonton, and this is a guy who basically like leaves his job, hops on his bicycle, goes over to the library, and just pours through historical documents at the local library, just to like feed an historical curiosity, but then also to share it with people. Like, hey, did you know this about Alberta's history? This is a guy who will like talk about the history of the KKK in Alberta mm. and the history of uh, black migrants from the U.S. Dust Bowl and how they were very warmly received, i.e. not at all, 
mm-hmm. in Canada, um, how they ingratiated themselves into indigenous communities. He does that on his own because he loves to do that. Why is it the responsibility of journalists like us to do this when there are thousands upon thousands of Canadian journalists that have the ability to write about this stuff and for the most part don't? Like I can only think of a few journalists. One just off the top of my head is Mac Lamoureux, who writes for Vice, who will go out into like, uh, you know, he will write about like hate mongers and expose their ties uh, to, uh, to to white supremacist movements. Like he'll he'll do that work. But were the Toronto Star reporters who are supposed to be doing this? Where are the National Post reporters yeah. doing this? Like it, it's it's it doesn't exist. And by their mere identity, are safer. Well, and, and, well, here's okay, and they are safe. Why don't you use that safety that you have to report on these issues that <coughs> endanger the lives of people of color? I have, you know, I, you can tell I'm black. Like, if I walk out of my house, you encounter me in the street, you know I'm, I'm a black man, right? Um, but I, I don't identify as Muslim. I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. I don't look Muslim, mm-hmm. you know, aside from, like, maybe my beard. But I don't style my beard in a way that you could recognize as, as a Muslim. My fiancé does not wear a hijab, you know. Our, so, like, uh, when we're out in public, we're black, and we we encounter a kind of danger that most white people don't. But then we ourselves do not encounter the kind of danger and we don't attract the kind of hatred. Like we're not the kind of hate magnets that a woman who wears a hijab does. Mm -hmm. But that's who ends up doing this kind of work. And so if if I have skin in the game and Muslim Canadians have skin in the game um, and we have an obligation to report to write and report on this stuff. Then how does a white person who does not face this kind of danger, what kind of obligation do they have? And that's what I was getting at in this article. And I'm not saying that. You know, Canadian media is itself white supremacist. I mean, you know, you could argue that, but that's not what I was trying to get at. What I was trying to get at is why is it that uh, a Kerry Diot has to be exposed by a Bashir Muhammad? Why is it that Bashir, on his own time and with his own money, has to try to push this to the forefront? That Kerry Diot, a member of parliament um, in Alberta, who was a member of the journalism profession for decades, but is also taking pictures with Faith Goldie and tweeting, make media great again. Why, does, why is it on Bashir to point that out? All right, like why is it on Fatima uh, that when Andrew Shear uh, tweets about the, uh, the shooting at the mosque in Christchurch, but doesn't use the word Islam and doesn't use the word Muslim, why is it Fatima's job to call that out on behalf of the National Observer? Where are all of our white colleagues who should be pointing at these acts? And I'm not saying that nobody did. It's just that they kind of followed suit behind her. Uh, what I was seeing was the trajectory on Twitter. Uh, Andrew Shear tweets sympathies, and people are saying, oh, he said something about it. And Fatima's like, well, wait a second. I didn't see him use either of these two words. What's wrong? And then all of a sudden, I see the rest of the media following suit and saying, yeah, Andrew Shear, why didn't you use these words? And it's like, why doesn't it occur to you to ask, the, to ask these questions yeah. first? And why, why, does the, why don't the people who put themselves in the line by asking those questions get the credit? Um, I don't ever exp- – like, I will say that I feel like my – the article that I wrote did influence people because yeah. people were reaching out to me via DMs and Good. saying, hey, I went to my news director. I showed them your article. I wanted to talk to them about this kind of stuff, and I think it is important for us to report on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I had various people in the media reaching out to me quietly and saying, hey, I, we are trying to do something about this. I, 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 I fully understand what you're, what you're saying with what you wrote, and I'm ashamed that we haven't done that so far. Like I have had journalists reach out to me and do that. Do I think I'm going to be recognized for what I wrote? Absolutely not. Because it's embarrassing for Canadian media when people of color call this stuff out. And it always happens. Like, you know, um, my friend and and former podcast colleague Desmond Cole goes through this stuff all the time where he draws attention to what it is that Canadian media is not talking about. And then you'll see they go on a different trajectory 
even though they will publicly push back and even like write articles disparaging him publicly um, for the kind of like journalistic activism that he's doing and that he's not being objective, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they go and do the stuff that he suggested that they should do and don't even give him any credit for it whatsoever. Uh, a good friend of mine and a, a colleague of yours, Noah Changa from mm. Georgia, is often talking about this online. Yeah. And she's really enlightened me to this idea that essentially, you know, people of color are often doing this like sort of hard labor on furthering some of these ideas and making sure that people understand how these are. And then later these ideas kind of get claimed and, and assimilated into uh, different projects without sort of recompense. Yeah. And um, do you, what do you see happening for sort of like people of color in the media in Canada that uh, may not, is there a sort of recompense that, that can come from that? <laughs> Uh, the only, I mean, the only, I don't how do I answer that question? No, there's never going to be a recompense because for, um, I, I consider myself very fortunate, uh, to have the position of contributing editor with McLean's. That's not, um, subscribe to McLean's. <laughs> please go ahead. Subscribe to McLean's. And I, and I would say like, you know, um, I, I am very comfortable around, um, the the McLean's staff um i'm i'm very comfortable with the editing that takes place i think they have a respect for the kind of work that i do and i think they have a respect for the work that um diverse groups of people are doing in this country much more so than they have in the past uh, the McLean's of 10 years ago is not the McLean's of today that's not me trying to like stand up for them uh, or make myself their mascot but I, I i think that they are trying to encourage these kinds of conversations happening which is why I, you know my uh, editor-in-chief was very eager to publish this article at the same time, there's there is almost no expectation of recompense whatsoever. There's only the expectation of like, could you please respect our lives and our ability to like earn a living? The most you can possibly get is like a handshake and a paycheck for your freelance work and a thank you very much. And it doesn't usually translate to, to very much else. But what will happen is that you know uh, when white colleagues start asking these pointed questions when they do start writing these lengthy essays, when they end up getting book deals and so forth, like they will receive the credit for doing the right thing after the groundwork has already been put in by people of color. And I'm not saying it's right or it's fair, but it's just what I expect because that's the way it's always been. So maybe we should wrap it up soon, but I, but I do want to talk about, um, I guess sort of fear that I have and maybe David as a new person in Canada, not a Canadian yet, but just the direction that we see Canada going in that you've highlighted in your piece, but that we're all kind of man sort of managing on a daily basis. Yeah. So the Ford and the Shear and the Alberta crap and just the it's it all feels a little more a lot more on the edge than before and what the so that's not a pointed mm -hmm. question at all, but I'd love just to hear your thoughts and how and I, I just I hate saying how do we resist, but I mean honestly, how do we? I mean, it's, it's well, you know what? Like I I I highly suspect that the United Conservative Party will form the next government in Alberta, and the United Conservative Party has had a, a problem, or not even a problem, but just like a, an infestation of white supremacy. And I shouldn't even say that as though like there is a United Conservative Party. And then there's like the infiltration of white supremacy. Like they're part and parcel with one another. Like they're interlinked. You can't have one really without the other. Um, here's, I think the failure of centrist and to an extent leftist media in this country has been in trying to adopt 
the language that we in the communities who are endangered by this stuff, trying to adopt the language that we use to explain the issue to Canada as a whole. So it's, it's like, yeah, they're, uh, they're racist, they're homophobic, and which they are. But are you connecting the problems that racism and homophobia brings into – are you connecting those issues to the material conditions of people who, example, for example, work in the oil patch? Right, yeah. like they they co opted that uh, that yellow vest movement out of France, and they have this like this convoy rolling onto Ontario, and they have you know they're like little like tokens, they're they're people of color who happen to be like in the movement as well, but they're also like virulently anti-immigrant. Does anybody ask questions about okay, so if you want to have this pipeline built, or you want to save the oil patch, what is your problem with immigrants? Wouldn't you want like a, a workforce? Because if you take immigration out of the picture, Canada actually has a, a negative labor force growth. Like we need immigrants in this country. Why are you talking about demographic replacement? What is what does your little movement that's supposed to do with your jobs and with oil interests, what does that have to do yeah. with white people being replaced by immigrants in this country? But like they won't ask those questions because they're very uncomfortable with it. And I think because like they know people in their own families and like they know they have friends and people that are like in the group chat that say this stuff and they try to ignore it. So they've been trying to skirt around it for so long that when a person of color finally comes out and says, actually, Jason Kenney is a fucking homophobe. He made the lives of, of uh, gay people, not just in Canada, but in the United States as well, made them miserable and mm-hmm. was gleeful about it. And it's like, so when LGBT activists point this stuff out, then people ask the question, well, Jason Kenney, are you a homophobe? Do, what, do you think, what the fuck do you think he's going to say? Yes. Like, do you, I think... Yeah, the, when did you stop beating your wife? Yeah, like, the way that they... The way that they uh, approach it is almost like you know uh trying to like get these woke points off and say well at least i asked him the question but are you asking the question in such a way that you're going to make his supporters uncomfortable too and i think that's that's kind of really what the failure has been like okay so if you have you know a, a person whose party forms government and people in that party uh very demonstrably have a problem with gay people or have a problem with muslims or have a problem with just about anybody else who's not white how can we as a province prosper? Like we're supposed to govern for everybody, right? Like that means that your neighbor who may not look like you, but their kids go to the same school that you do, um, who requires the same healthcare that you do, requires the same access to education that you do needs, you know, uh, clean water and clean air and, you know, uh, an environment that's, uh, that's, that's thriving rather than declining. Like they need the same things that you do. So how can, how can you as a party claim to be, or all Albertans when you've shown that you're not for some. Those kind of questions don't get asked because I don't think it really even occurs to them. They ask questions like, are you a homophobe? So I... I, I, opinions I, have I don't, bad results, and I don't think that that's yeah. playing out in the politics here. No, it's not. But the thing is, we don't connect those bad opinions to those bad results. We connect bad opinions to bad character. And I don't care about oh, a politician's character. Yeah. I care about... I don't care who you are. I care what it is that you do. Like, you know, good fruit cannot come from a bad tree. You look at somebody like Doug Ford, where it's like people, I think, voted him into power because they were so sick of, in a way, like being patronized and condescended to by a, a liberal elitist class that believes that they know better than they do. And it's like... Doug Ford's proving that he knows no better than anyone. Doug Ford, I don't even... Did he graduate high school? I don't know if he did. <laughs> no, no, he, did, he graduated high school. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's before he... St- I'm just asking, like, I don't know if if he did or not. He started as a businessman. Yeah, I know know he was in Humber College for a bit, but this is, like, this is not a very bright... Self-employed, from what I heard. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, he kind of inherited the family business, but that's besides the point. But it's like, you know, this is a a guy who, 
how could you let this happen? Like, how could you let, how could you let him off the hook when he presented no platform whatsoever? And I know that people were asking him like, Hey, what is your platform? But are they connecting that to, well, if you don't have a platform, you can pretty much do whatever you want and not, and not have broken a promise. Yeah. And I, I think that people's failure to hold them to the account of what the possible outcomes could be like, Hey, if you don't have a robust um, public health policy, we can end up with another Walkerton. If you don't have a policy for how we're going to absorb immigrants aside from shut down the border, then we're going to have a problem with housing. We're going to have a problem with transiency. We could have you know, problems with crime. If you're not going to, uh, are you going to, for example, um, uh, continue the work with the, uh, the anti-racism directorate that the previous government enacted? And how will you support that? If you don't do that, well, we've seen what the results are. Then young people, uh, you know, black kids in school, end up having uh, poor results they end up getting filtered or streamed out of the system um that you have a brain drain like people who graduate uh, school in this country but then have to move elsewhere for opportunities how can you plug these dams and connecting it to what are the um not just the policy outcomes but what are the social outcomes but they don't do that they would rather ask doug four questions like are you a racist and this is what we end up with yeah i mean i in some ways i'd prefer him feel racist opinions internally Rather than have racist outcomes in his policy, uh, I think it's just better to not Actually, be racist. Actually, I'd prefer to not be racist, but I yeah. But if I had to make the trade off, I think it's, you know what though. Yeah. You know, okay. Here's 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 my. <clears throat> I grew up, you know, in uh, neighborhoods with like um, Italian and like Polish and Portuguese working class people, and some of them were, were real. Like, just, like, straight up, like, <laughs> you can't come into my home. Yeah. You know, like, I, I don't want you on my lawn. But it's like, at least I know what that person is like and what they're yeah. about. I would much rather know the truth about that person yeah. up front than, like, this this quiet, polite, and condescending kind of racism, which I think is so pervasive in this country. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not to say, like, I like racists. But it's just, like... And even if, at least like, you know, right? Well, even if, okay. But I think, like, in some ways, we almost, like, punish transgressions in, like language or attitudes or whatever um it's like we're it's almost like you know that the person who wants to be seen as the as being on the same side as you right like who actually like works next to you or who's your co-worker at the restaurant or you know works next to you um in the uh, the cubicle form or whatever like they like you they generally want to get along but they don't know as much as you do they might be ignorant to a few things and they might mess up and it's like i think in a way you know, uh, it's easier to like point to that person and be like, oh, see, this is what I have to put up with every day, like day in and day out. I have to put up with this racism and you're the cause of that. And it's like, it's easier laterally to like lash out at people who, you know, care and will try to change their behavior. But you like try to force them into this, like this prostrate position, position of always having to apologize to you for not knowing as much when it's like, but you have an apparatus in this country who, you know, promises that diversity is a priority for them. And at every turn like every time that they're faced with the choice between um agency and representation um for uh you know for for minority groups in this country versus corporate interests they would choose corporate interests 10 times out of 10 and yet we show up at the ballot box and we vote for those people anyway like that that to me is like the, the biggest problem here is that like there's it's almost like we we attack the people who who whose feelings we know we can hurt because the people who exercise the most amount of power and really don't care about your feelings one way or the other, we know that we can't overcome them. So it's almost like we let them off the hook. And that's, that's the biggest problem to me as far as like the way that the racial conversation in this country goes.
attacked the king, not Karen. You lost me. I don't, I don't know. Karen's my general term for like. Oh yeah, the, yeah. the weird person. <laughs> oh, that that yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, listen, if we're talking about like Karen and Susan and Nancy, you know, who like <laughs> call the cops because they saw a black kid with a lemonade stand. I mean, please attack them all the time. I, I actually, <laughs> it, it gives me like a little bit of joy, you know, when they uh, when they go viral on Twitter. Like, I, I actually get happy about this kind of stuff. But that, that has been good. But but it, but we know that in the greater scheme of things, like, what is it really accomplishing? Not a heck of a lot. It's, it, I think to the extent that it accomplishes people not um, trying to, like, use the state to enforce their personal discomfort at the same I time. it scared people a little bit. It, well, it has. And it I, think pe- I think people should be scared about that. At the same time, like, the reason that they do that is because they know the state will have their back. And that tells me the, the larger issue, not to say that you should never, like, call these people out or expose them. But I think a, a great deal of energy should be put towards changing the conditions of the state that they feel safe to call the police on you because your child has a lemonade stand. Like the idea like that anybody should feel safe to pick up the phone and call the police on a child tells me that we've got a way bigger problem than just some white lady with a cell phone. Well, that's a perfect note to end on. I think not that I want to end and I want to have you back in a million times (laughs) because this is just amazing and just fun and insightful yes, so you know, yeah, have fun have fun chatting to the both of you both here and on online or whatever <laughs> so thank you so much andre demise yeah thank you for, for having coming me by appreciate it yeah and thank you very much and uh we can't wait to have you on again and uh let's hope to have a, a meet up with some of our folks from uh the south of the border yeah yeah uh if i know if you're listening that means you got to come up here at some point get that passport stamped ma'am we hope to see you soon <laughs> thanks andre thanks